invite you to take a Bible and turn uh, again to Psalm 73. If you're using a Bible in the pew, it's page 485. I have a book I'd like to recommend to you. It's a, it's a compilation of sermons that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on Psalm 73. It's called Faith on Trial. The uh, foreword is by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, a couple of the ideas in the sermon today uh, I mentioned came, came from him, though he goes into much more depth than I plan to. There's another book that I'll refer to at the end of the sermon. I'll refer to the author. It's called Marriage, the Dream that Refuses to Die. And it was written by Elizabeth Fox Genovese, who taught at Emory. And I'll, I'm not going to talk about marriage, but I want to tell you about what happened to her um, at, at the end uh, of the sermon today. If you weren't with us last week, this is part two of a two-part sermon, and we looked at Psalm 73, which is written by a man named Asaph. Asaph was a court composer. He was the worship leader, you might say, in the court of King David. Uh, and what he's doing here in this psalm is recounting a period of great doubting where he almost lost his faith in God. And he's, he's telling what it was like from that perspective. And so we, last week, just looked at the first half of the psalm, which is where he's, he's going through and recounting what he was thinking during that period when his faith was being eroded. Today, as we'll see, there's a transition that takes place about halfway through the psalm. And he returns to his faith in a kind of unexpected way. Uh, so that's what the focus will be when we look at it together. I, I do want to read the entire psalm, so follow along, if you will, as we hear God's word. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through, through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered and I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, 
I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. O Lord, with the psalmist, we pray and ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, he... Asaph began in verse 1 with his conclusion, Surely God, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So that's where he ended up. He, he, that was his conclusion that he states at the beginning. And then he says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story of how I had to arrive at that. And the way I arrived at that conclusion was I almost lost my faith. And so he, as we just read, he, he goes through and he, he looked at, he tells how he looked at the lives of godless people and and they, they, they were doing well while the godly were suffering. And he questioned not the existence of God, but the, the ways of God. He didn't fall into a period or state of atheism. His question was more, why does God work this way? I don't understand it. He says his faith in verse 13, he, he arrives that the decision, it's been in vain. Surely in, in, in vain have I kept my heart pure. His obedience has been to no avail. And, and I must ask you before I go any further, do you ever feel that way? You may feel that way right now. Uh, and, and I think the only thing worse than feeling that way and thinking that is when you have no one to talk to about it. Uh, so perhaps out, out of fear of how your questions will be perceived or heard or, or misunderstood. And I, I mentioned last week, and I, and I mean it, I would hope our church was a place where no questions are off limits about anything. Uh, we should, if this is the truth, we, we don't need to fear questions. We need to be that place. You can go on the internet today and you can pretty much ask any question you want and you'll get a multitude of answers. You can ask about anything. And now, not all those answers are right. And often they're, they're wrong and they're very, very biased. But you will not be scorned for asking the question. And young people today, I think young adults, they, they leave the church. They, they depart, and, and usually it's not because there's a hostility. Uh, it's that they're not even allowed to ask the questions. And they think, well, if I can't ask the questions, I'll never arrive at the answers, and it's just irrelevant. So with that in mind, the questions Asaph was asking were a sign that his faith was eroding. And he uses a picture throughout the first half and even into the second half of the psalm of falling. I was sliding backwards. Christians use the term backsliding, or they used to use that. Well, it's a good term when seen in light of Psalm 73. I was losing my faith, he said. The picture is I was, I was like sliding backwards, and I did not know what to grab and hold on to keep from going there. So what was the cause of his backsliding? As I mentioned, it was, not, it was not intellectual. He's not doubting the existence of God. He's not doubting the truth. He's doubting what he sees in life. 
God, if you're in control, why does it seem that the people that ignore you prosper and the people that are devoted to you do not and even suffer? That was the essence of his questioning. Uh, His questioning was not worldliness. He had not been like Demas, to whom Paul referred in the New Testament, having deserted him because he loved this present world. Uh, He was not backsliding because it was something moral. There's no indication that he'd fallen into some kind of grievous sin or immorality or anything like that. That that can happen, but it had not happened in Asaph's case. So the first half of the psalm he describes, as I just read, and as the sermon about how he almost lost his faith. Everything changes, though, when we come to verse 17. And what happens is he says... It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. That's the transition. That's the turn. That's the turning point in this story that Asaph is telling. He went into the sanctuary of God. My faith was being eroded. I was almost losing my faith. I had arrived at the conclusion that all of it was in vain, this obedience to God until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now, what was the sanctuary of God? This was before the little bit of Old Testament history here. Asaph lived during the reign of King David, as I mentioned earlier. If you remember, God gave David plans, you might say, to build a temple, but it was not to be built by David. It was to be built by his son Solomon. And so that was the first temple. It's not still in existence today. Uh, the first temple that Solomon built, and that's where the, uh, well, you know, that's where the worship would take place, the sacrifices and so forth. Before that, during Asaph's time, was a transitional period. When the Israelites had been in slavery in Egypt and God delivered them and Moses led them while they were in the wilderness... God told them to worship him with what was called a tabernacle. It was a portable tent with a portable fence that went around it, a fence of curtains. And they would take this, and there was very specific direction in the Old Testament as to what was to be there and what the priest was to do with the sacrifice. And there was the Ark of the Covenant, the box, the gold overlaid box that held the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, among other things. And there were these, these other pieces that, that were part of the furniture, you might say, in the tabernacle. Once they settled in Israel, then you had Jerusalem, and King David was there, and that's where the worship took place, but it was a permanent tent called the Tent of Meeting. So he said, until I went into the sanctuary of God, we assume then that he's talking about that Tent of Meeting. Well, what would he have seen there? He would have seen the priest offering sacrifices, an animal dying in the place of the sins of others. He would have seen this large labor of water where the priest would wash the blood off of his hands to show the innocence that would be gained by this Redeemer that God had promised. He would see the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies that held the Ark of the Covenant, where he would know that 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 law of God condemns us all. And so blood would be poured over that ark, the mercy seat on top of it, the lid of the ark, to show that our sin, your sin, my sin, must be covered by blood, and it will either be our own or that of someone else. 
And that someone else is the Redeemer who was promised, Jesus Christ. So Asaph, would have, we know he would have seen that. And when he went in there, he began to see life from God's perspective, which is real life. Now we have the fuller explanation. But in particular, what he says is that as he went in there, I discerned their end. He meant he thought about the eternal destiny of the wicked. You and I need to see that all of us, the Bible says that all of us are made in the image of God, and you have an eternal soul. And that soul will never die. And it will spend eternity with God in heaven or apart from God in hell. Now that's a hard truth. And it was in the sanctuary, Asaph regained that perspective. The real world, he began to say, see, this is the real world. And he did something. He was not passive. He was active even by going. Now, the Bible instructs us often not to cut ourselves off from assembling with other Christians. Assemble in the New Testament is the formal word for gather for what this is, corporate worship. And they gathered on the first day of the week, the day that Christ was resurrected from the dead. And we know that the Bible gives us certain things we are to do in those assemblies, those corporate worship services. Prayer for all men, especially for those in leadership, government leadership and so forth. We are to um, have the reading and preaching of God's word. There's to be the administration of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, and a few other things, the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're not told how long that service is to last. We're, we're not told anything about pews and pulpits and church architecture. A lot of that has grown up through history, and it has good rationale behind it. But the specifics of worship, we're not really told ex exactly how it's to take the time of day. But we know it's to be on the first day of the week, what we call Sunday, and that we are to gather and to do this. That's, that's through the scriptures. Now, here's what happens. Now, let me use myself as an example of what Asaph faced. Asaph is losing his faith. He's sliding backwards. His faith is eroded. And here I may feel the exact same way. You may be right now where Asaph was in the first part of that psalm. And you come into the house of God, and I'm not referring to this building. I mean the gathering of God's people. In this case, it's a historic building. It could be in a warehouse. It could be a tent in the desert. It could be outside somewhere by a river. So we refer to that as the house of God, that God is there with his people who have gathered to worship him. So I come into this, and I just think, why am I here? I am here because God has taken the initiative to tell us to gather to worship him. So immediately my mind begins to move off of myself and on to God, if I'm conscientious about this. And I'm thinking, okay, God is reaching out, even by offering this now, and inviting me to come, our call to worship, into his presence, in this corporate worship gathering. And then I look around, and what I see? I see other people. Maybe it's a small crowd of 15. Maybe it's a large crowd of about 150. Maybe it's the 9 o'clock crowd of about 350. I'm, anyway... Anyway, so I'm, I'm looking at this, and I see, oh, there are other people here. 
I'm not alone. Asa felt very alone. I was sliding. I was losing my faith. There's no one to talk to. Well, I look out and I see these men and women and younger people and older people. And, and I think, I remember what Paul said. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. What I'm facing is a temptation in my faith. I'm not alone. Look, I bet that person's dealt with it too. And that person, and I know that person. And so I'm, I'm together with these people. And then, then I look and there's this older godly woman that I know and I happen to know her story and I think oh there's miss so-and-so and I remember when her husband died and I remember when her son was killed in battle and I know that she suffered from all sorts of things and suddenly my big problem gets about that big and there's something doctors tell us this there's something about suffering whether it's even psychological or physical that finds comfort knowing others are suffering too. I don't mean that to sound crass or that you delight in others' suffering, but when you know you're not alone, that I'm going through this, but look what she's gone through. What I'm going through doesn't, does not compare to what, what she's going, been through. See, so what happens? How did that come about? I came into the sanctuary of God. Corporate worship. All these things can only happen in a corporate setting. And we rightly stress today personal devotions, personal Bible reading, personal prayer. How's your personal relationship with God? And yet, so much of the scriptures are directed to us as to what we're to do corporately. George Barna and his organization for 40 years, I guess, have studied everything about American culture, demographics from smartphone use to, to attendance at church. I mean, church, society, business, I mean, they, they study it all. So I purchased a couple of months ago the summary from 2017. In about, it's about 300 different areas, one-page summary reports where they've done in-depth study of a variety of things about American demographics. Now, some of it is not encouraging at all. Here's one of the issues. When I first came on the church staff here in the 1980s, we were commonly told that a committed church member would give you uh, one morning a week, and a very committed, an extremely committed member would also give you an evening. You know, they'd come to Sunday night church or Wednesday night Bible study or something like that. And a leader would give you a morning and two evenings. Now, at least according to George Barna, and I've asked other pastors of mainline churches in the area, not other Presbyterians, if this is true, and they, they are seeing this in their churches too, that today a committed member of a church, a person who sees himself that this is my church, I'm committed to it, will be present twice a month. Now, you say, so what? Uh, when I'm gone, I may be at another church. Well, if you're only in worship twice a month, then the, the spiritual damage that can do is unestimable. Because that almost, if, if God does all these things only in the corporate setting, when we cut ourselves off from that, we are depressed. It's like a person saying, I'm going to get healthy, and the way I'm going to do that is I'm not going to eat any more food. And I'm going to, I'm going to throw in water, too. I'm not going to drink any water. 
and I think I'll feel better. And we'll say, that's not the way to go about it. You know, you're going to hurt yourself, you're not going to help yourself. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, back in the day, he's more direct than I am, here's what he said. People who neglect attendance at the house of God are not only being unscriptural, let me put it bluntly, they are fools. And he meant you're being foolish. So what does nature show us? If a lion wants to uh, uh, get some prey, they cut out the weakest member from the herd. And I find that the temptation, when I'm in a great period of doubt, doubting God, doubting my faith, I don't want to go be around church. See a connection there? I'm depriving myself of the very thing God made. Now, I have to. I'm paid, right? You know, I'm, I'm, paid, I'm paid to be good. The rest of you are good for nothing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But anyway, so that, that's, a, that's the last thing you want to do. So if, you're a spirit, if you say, I'm a spiritual wreck right now, come. That's why God has this. That's why the doors are open. Okay, let's move on back to the passage with the few moments I have. Let's look at just quickly, glance over some of the verses, verses 18 to 20. He, he has a new awareness of the destiny of the wicked, that they may look secure, as he described in the first part of the psalm, but actually they're on slippery ground. You set them in slippery places. You make them fall. There's the word again, fall, that he had been using for himself, to ruin. That it looks so stable, but it just takes a gentle puff from God, and they are gone. He gains a new awareness of himself in verses 21 to 22. He says, when I was embittered, in other words, when I was in that period of my faith being eroded, I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like an animal before God. Meaning like if you've ever felt, I feel like an animal in a cage. I'm locked up. And I, and I don't know what to do. That's, he says, that's where I was. I wasn't even making sense when I was in that state of doubt. And we can feel trapped and helpless and then in verses 23 to 26, he has a new awareness of God's presence. He says, uh, Nevertheless, I am continually with the, you. You hold me, my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. His eyes are still on the afterlife. Not just on those who don't know God, but he says, You will receive me to glory. He looks toward heaven. And whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire Except you. He recognizes that God has been with him all along, even during the time of his doubt. He was not abandoned. God did not abandon him. And he finds assurance knowing that the Lord had not abandoned him at that time. And so in verses 25 and 26, I just read the first one Whom have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's saying my relationship with God is the most important thing. He had envied the health and wealth of the wicked, and now if it's like, you, here's a choice, God or this, and he says, I want God. He had envied the fact that they were noted and quoted and promoted, and everybody seemed to listen to them, and they had influence. Here's God. Asaph, which do you want? I want God more than that. When I was a high school senior and had just begun to walk with Christ, I wrote on a post-it note verses 25 and 26 and 
tape them to the wall in front of where I would study in my bedroom. And each morning I would look, and I learned it in the New American Standard. Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. I read just this week in preparing for this that James Boyce, before he died, said he thought every Christian ought to memorize those verses. I had beat him to it going back to high school. Just because I had been introduced to this psalm and those verses, I thought, this is profound. When Can a person value God that much? So you may be in a period of doubt. Repent. Come back to God. He will accept you. There's nothing here about God being harsh. You notice at the end, when he, there's nothing about discipline and judgment and punishment. And God said, I told you so. You wasted all that time. There's nothing like that. He receives us back with open arms. The reason I told you this, uh, mentioned this book on marriage, Elizabeth Fox Genovese. Uh, Elizabeth Fox Genovese, that's a compilation of some articles that she wrote back. It was published in, in, in uh, 2007, the very year she died. She died in 2007. And uh, she was the first to institute found an institute of women's studies at the Ph.D. level, and she did so at Emory. And that's where she taught humanities and history. And for most of her stellar career, and she received all sorts of accolades from the President of the United States on down, uh, she and her husband during that time were Marxist. And those who worked with her, her colleagues, said she was a very reasonable Marxist, but she was a Marxist. Nevertheless, that was her worldview, and she taught her classes from that perspective. So she began some research in the early 1990s, leading up to 1995, research and writing on the subject of abortion. And you may think, well, what more could, could be researched? And... Obviously, from her worldview and where she was at that time, she was a strong advocate for abortion and the, necess the, uh, the necessity that it be available for women to have abortions because if they do not have that right, then it could interrupt their careers, it could, it could hinder their higher education, it could keep them from fulfilling their dreams. Now, she was just alone in her thinking and doing her research. She was not being talked to by Christian people or reading a Bible or anything, and something began to happen to her. She started thinking through her own logic, and she teased it out to the end. And she asked herself, if that's my worldview that women should have abortion, and everybody's free to have his or her own worldview and each person pursues their own worldview, and they pursue it to its logical conclusion, then there's only one possible outcome, and that is violence. Because she said somebody's going to, to, to claim or insist that their worldview is the ultimate worldview, and they will dominate all others. And then she realized... Wait, that's what's happening in abortion. It's a mother's worldview taking a precedent over a child's right to life, one human being deciding that another human being should not live. And if a mother's able to save her child that the child doesn't deserve to live, then somebody can save my parents, she thought, 
they don't deserve to live. And somebody can say of me that I don't deserve to live. And it terrified her. And it drove her to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in 1995, Elizabeth Fox Genovese became a Christian. And she said, and this is my point really, I realize that there is no morality without authority. And the only authority which provides life-giving morality is the Lord Jesus Christ. And she said, I found a personal relationship with Jesus as Lord and Savior. So here was this decorated scholar. Here was this highly respected person of great influence who said, I am drawn to the love and the mercy of this God. Jesus said there is nothing you can give up in this life for him that you will not receive multiple times over in the life to come. Let's pray together. Our Father, we all have questions of a variety of nature, some because of things that have happened to us. Some of us have endured incredible abuse, even by people who claim your name. And we have great disappointments, and we're perplexed. We're perplexed about prayers, perhaps, that did not seem to be answered, or events that we just wonder how you could be the source of those. And so we pray that we'd be reminded today of your compassion and your invitation and the fact that you gently bring us back to yourself and that that's, we would arrive at where the psalmist is, that we would see everything in this life as almost worthless compared to having you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.